0: One of the ancient schools of philosophy, indeed a whole philosophical movement that Michel Foucault devotes a considerable amount of attention to in technologies of the self, is that of Stoicism. And from the very beginning, we should say a few things. He's not talking about the Stoic movement per se, he's mostly interested in and focusing on what we typically call late stoicism or Imperial Roman stoicism. Typically we divide stoicism into the early stoa with Zeno and the first several scholarks, And then we have middle stoicism with Panatius and Posidonius and some of the people around them. Although there's a continuation of old stoicism, they're, they're criticizing those, those figures as being unorthodox. And then we have the late Stoicism of, for example, Seneca, Musonius Rufus, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, various other figures as well. And much of the literature that we have, the direct literature, is from those later Stoics. There's a lot of debate and controversy within the scholarly literature about how much divergence there is between them. Foucault, he's really... Putting that question aside, he's just interested, at least in this respect, in what we're going to get from Seneca onward. As a matter of fact, he discusses Cicero, but doesn't worry about Cicero's representations and depictions of Stoics. Cicero was able to actually study with with some of the leading Stoics of the time. So we're getting a kind of partial picture, and we're also getting a picture of the Stoics that... Suits Foucault's narrative. It's largely true, you could say, but there are some gaps in it that I'll point out as we go along. So he tells us that in the Roman imperial period, Stoicism as an approach is changing. And he gives us a couple examples of this. He says there's a different conception of truth and memory, another method of examining the self. That's that's particularly important. First, we see the disappearance of dialogue and the increasing importance of a new pedagogical relationship a new pedagogical game where the master teacher speaks and does not ask questions and the disciple does not answer but must listen and keep silent. And then he shifts to talking about Pythagorean and Plutarch, not Stoics, So that's a little bit irrelevant there so here's one of the places where we can say based on what we actually have is Foucault largely correct is Foucault really overstating things is Foucault 100% correct it's guaranteed he's not 100% correct all you've got to do is read Epictetus's discourses and you'll find in them some dialogues (laughs) including dialogues not just with students but with people from around town a guy who's got a sick child a Roman procurator all sorts of discussions like that. So let's say that that Foucault's largely correct about this. There's a shifting away from direct dialogue, perhaps, and more of a focus on, you know, monological, you know, here's what we need to study. That's already there, though, say in Cicero's On the Ends, where Cato gives this long speech about the nature of Stoicism before they go on to, you know, criticize some of those Stoic doctrines. So... This master speaks, student listens thing. That's a part of Stoic teaching as far as we can tell, but it, it certainly isn't the totality of it. So if we go on a little bit further, there's this discussion about Seneca and the examination of conscience in Seneca's day era. He describes an examination of conscience. And the goal was the purification of the conscience using a monomic device, do good things, have a good examination of the self, a good sleep follows. Seneca doesn't just talk about this in day era, of course. He talks about it at a number of different points in his works. And this is indeed a stoic practice. The notion that at night, and actually you might also at the beginning of the day do some things. We see this in Marcus Aurelius and and Epictetus as well. But at night, you you go over how the day went and whether you did a good job or did a poor job. And, And you think about, you know, sort of an after action report. What went wrong? How can I do better the next day? Foucault makes an interesting point. He tells us that Seneca is using juridical language and it seems that the self is both the judge and the accused. But if you look closer, Seneca is using terms related not to juridical, but administrative practices as when a comptroller looks at the books or a building inspector examines a building self-examination is taking stock. I think this is a really great insight. And I think he's he's quite correct about this, that the self, Self examination is not just like, Ugh, you did the wrong thing. It's more like, okay, the building's not up to code. Somebody put the plumbing in wrong. We're going to have to undo the plumbing. What, what happened here? <laughs> and why is this a bad thing? So I, I think he's actually quite correct about that. And I would say that that fits in with the stoic perspective in general. When you look at the stock taking that Marcus himself is urging and that Epictetus is also suggesting we ought to do, I think it, it jibes perfectly well with that. It's not just about some imperious judge that you've broken the rules. It's more like, how do you fix what's what's wrong with the building that is yourself or the process that is yourself. So false, he says there are simply good intentions left undone. The rule is a means of doing something correctly, not judging what happened in, the past and he says seneca is a permanent administrator of himself not a judge of his past and so there is a different attitude towards this than what we're going to see later in christianity for example there's also this discussion of retiring into the self and why do you do this well it can be to get away from all the crap that's outside in the world but it's not just supposed to be like a little pleasure trip inside your your memory palace or something like that He frames it a different way. The Stoics spiritualized the notion of anachoresis the retreat of an army, the hiding of an escaped slave from its master, or the retreat into the country away from the towns, as in Marcus Aurelius's country retreat. A retreat into the country becomes a spiritual retreat into oneself. It's a general attitude, a precise act every day. You retire into the self to discover, not to discover faults and deep feelings, but only to remember rules of action, the main laws of behavior. It is a, as he says, mnemotechnical, sort of thing to do. I think Foucault is overplaying this. I think that you do, there's several motives for retiring into yourself that are there in the Stoic literature. Some of it is to, you know, retire into yourself. Epictetus tells you, you have got citadels within yourself that the vices have created. You need to break those down, right? So you do that by retiring into yourself. That's clearly a different motive. The memorization of things, the recalling to mind, that's definitely a motif that Foucault is pointing out sometimes you do retreat into yourself so that you can put off the stuff that is is troubling you another key thing that he singles out and he talks about it a little bit earlier in the work is letters to friends and now this is not a just just stoic thing, but he does point out some interesting features of these, these letters that are happening in this period, right? He says that if you look at, for example, Cicero's letters, here we go. You can compare Cicero to the later Seneca or Marcus Aurelius in this, this field of writing, right? Attention is paid to nuances of life, mood, reading the experience of the self was intensified and widened by this virtue of the active writing. So he says, we see Seneca and Marcus's meticulous concern with the details of daily life, with the movements of the spirit, with self-analysis. Everything in the imperial period is present in Marcus Aurelius's letter to Fronto and he talks about all these different things and he says, the letter presents a description of everyday life. All the details of taking care of oneself are here, the care of the self, right? All the unimportant things he has done. Cicero tells only important things, but in Aurelius's letter, these details are important because they are you, what you thought, what you felt. So there's an important transformation and epistolary exchange, you could say going on. And in some respect, letters are becoming a little bit more like what lyric poetry had been centuries before. This is a technology of the self for the Stoics that the Stoics are making big use of. You could also think of Marcus Aurelius' own meditations to myself as similarly being writings like that You can think about Epictetus's discourses, which he himself did not write, but were written down by his pupil and disciple Arian as another example of this writing, Seneca's own writings as well. So we've got two really key things, letters and this stock taking, this retreat into oneself going on. At this point, Foucault says something that's... (laughs) It reminds me of when in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he tells us that there's two kinds of particular justice and then goes on to detail three kinds of particular justice. Uh, Foucault is actually doing the opposite of this. He says, this is after that section, I have spoken of three stoic technologies of the self, letters to friends and disclosure of self, examination of self and conscience including a review of done of what should have been done in co- comparison of the two so that's only two and maybe the retiring into the self is the, the third one there then he says now i want to consider the third stoic technique a not a disclosure of the secret self but a remembering right and so this this third one is what he devotes probably the most time to and is, is Foucault strictly correct in how he's interpreting the term escasis in the Stoic text? No, I wouldn't say so, but it's it's revealing some stuff to us. It's kind of helpful. There's a bit more to, I think, the term escasis than what he's doing with it, but that's okay. Let's see what he's actually saying. So he tells us it's not a disclosure of the secret self, but a remembering... For Plato, one must discover the truth that is within one. If you remember your platonic dialogues, the truth is within us. We we know things from having been in a previous life. We just need to have it brought to mind. Stoics don't have that, right? There's no pre-existence of the souls, you know, in some previous life and transmigration or anything like that. Stoics are materialists. As a matter of fact, the soul probably dies with the body, except in very rare cases for, for the Stoics. So he tells us in the Stoics, truth is not in oneself and we're going to come back to that in a moment but in the logoi the teachings of the masters one memorizes what one has heard converting the statement one hears into rules of conduct the subjectivization of truth is the aim of these techniques now is this completely correct no (laughs) if we're mapping it onto the stoics is it an interesting and revealing way of talking about it yes So for the Stoics, truth is not in oneself. That's incorrect. That's correct in the sense that it's not in you in a platonic sense, but part of the goal of Stoicism as a philosophical movement is to assimilate that truth to yourself. So the truth eventually does end up being within yourself. And there's already a good bit of truth within yourself. You just have to sort of disentangle it, right? There are, for example, the, as Epictetus calls them, the prolepses, the general ideas, also called the ennoi in other places, general ideas that were, were born with us, innate ideas. So Foucault is being a little bit shifty here for his own purposes, I guess. The logoi are the logoi, the teachings of the masters, sure. But this is also passing over the entire meaning of the term logos, the singular of, of logoi entire universe is permeated by a Logos, a divine mind that we call Zeus, right? And within each of us, there is a spark of that. This is just straight out Epictetus. And that is the logike, part of ourselves, the rational part, we all have Logos within us. So it's, it's a matter of using Logos to have more Logos, you could say, and to strip away, make your Logos work properly. So, you know, is it just the teachings of the masters? Where did they get their, their ideas from, right? That's a problem there. So this can't be a adequate treatment of it, of what eschesis is, but it is, it is revealing. You do learn from masters. You do assimilate what it is that they have to say, their logoi, which are about the logos and which activate your own logos. So that's, you know, it's not completely wrong. A little bit later, he he says something a little bit better. that I, I like quite a bit. He calls eschesis, which we can translate as discipline, training, whatever we want a set of practices by which one can acquire, assimilate, and transform truth into a permanent principle of action. Aletheia, truth becomes ethos, that is character. It is a process of the intensification of subjectivity. Okay. I I think that's dead on. That's a really great way to describe what goes on in a scasis. You're not just doing exercises just to do exercises. You're not just doing them because somebody said this is good for you. There should be this continual process of acquiring, assimilating, and transforming truth into a permanent principle of action. He also talks about this quite rightly as getting prepared, literally to equip yourself, right? So that, that's correct. And then Foucault then says, oh, well, they broke these down into two parts. This is kind of interesting because it parallels Plato's own discussion of this sort of thing in Republic book two, where he contrasts musike and gymnastica, right? So melete and gymnasia, this is not a bad way of, of representing things. And it, it's kind of schematic, but it's interesting as well says, what are the principal features of a scasis? They include exercises in which the subject puts himself in a situation where he can verify whether he can confront events and use the discourses with which he's armed. That's gymnasia. It's a question of testing the preparation, right? Then there's the actual like preparation. So he says, the Greeks characterized the two poles of these exercises by the terms melete and gymnasia. Melite means meditation, according to the Latin translation, meditatio, it has the same root as he's quite correct about this as epimelestai, it's a vague term, a technical term borrowed from rhetoric. Melite is the work one undertakes in order to prepare a discourse or an improvisation by thinking over useful terms and arguments. It's a matter of anticipating the real situation through dialogue in one's thoughts. And so if you look at the stoic literature, there is a lot of this, right? there's a lot of giving you advice about how you should think about situations that you're not yet in and how you can like frame things for yourself to better understand it. That is indeed a, a significant part of stoic literature. And he brings up the pre malorum thinking about bad things before they, or even if they don't happen in order to equip yourself against them. And actually let's take a, a little close look at what he has to say about this. He says the most famous Exercise of meditation is this pre meditatio malorum as practiced by the Stoics. It's an ethical imaginary experience. In appearance, it's a rather dark and pessimistic view of the future. The Stoics developed three idetic reductions of future misfortune. So it's not a question of imagining the future as it's likely to turn out, but to imagine the worst that can happen, even if there's little chance it will turn out that way, right? Second, you don't envision things as possibly taking place in the distant future, but as already actual in the process of taking place, that's how you're visualizing it. So don't imagine you might be exiled, but imagine you're already exiled. Don't imagine, for example, that you're old. Imagine yourself as being old right now, right? And then the third, he says, is you don't do this in order to experience inarticulate sufferings, but in order to convince yourself they're not real ills. There's an ethical component, a ascetic component to this. You, You think about your, you know, eventual death as like being right here so that you won't fear death, so that you won't see death as an evil. And this is a great example, right? So there's lots of exercises like this. You can do this with rejection, you know, worries about public speaking. You can do this with anger. And then there's gymnasia. Gymnasia is the training yourself by placing yourself in real life situations where you have to use the teachings, the rules, the truth that you've assimilated and try it out, right? So if it's public speaking that you're worried about and you did some pre meditatio malorum for that, now you actually go and give a talk and you apply the things that you've learned and in the process you're doing two things. One is you're actually doing it and reinforcing the habit by doing it, but the other thing is you're verifying yourself you're verifying whether you've managed to not just cognitively but actually assimilate these principles right so that you can make it happen and this is quite true there there's a lot of this with the stoics He also says that processes of abstinence, you know, for example, sexual abstinence, physical privation, other rituals of purification, Epictetus, for example, counsels on a hot day, take a sip of water, let it be in your mouth, spit it out, don't swallow it. Do some voluntary privation, that's gonna make you better. And he says, what's the point of this? It's not purification or witnessing demonic force as in the Pythagoras and Socrates. In the culture of the Stoics, their function is to establish and test the independence of the individual with regard to the external world, right? here's a prime example that he gives seneca's letters he prepares for a great feast day by acts of mortification of the flesh in order to convince himself poverty is not an evil and that he can endure it right then foucault says that there is a whole other range of stuff in between these two poles of melate and gymnasia intermediate possibilities and he gives us an example of this watchfulness over representations so watchfulness You could also call this attentiveness is how it's translated, or even mindfulness, right? Prosoche, paying attention to what's going on. But representations is a bad translation. Usually in the Stoic literature, we, we translate this as appearances or impressions, fantasiae, right? The things that present themselves to us, it might be true or might be not. So we are the creatures that can make rational use of that according to the the Stoics. And there's all sorts of exercises and discourses about how to do this properly. He gives two metaphors from Epictetus, the night watchman, the money changer. These are just two out of many that that Epictetus actually uses. And he he actually says something kind of funny about Epictetus here that I think is worth noting. He tells us, in Epictetus, there are two exercises, sophistical and ethical. The sophistical ones are exercises borrowed from the school, question and answer games. This must be an ethical game. That is, it must must teach a, a moral lesson. The second are ambulatory exercises. In the morning, you go for a walk and you test your reactions to that walk. The purpose of both exercises is control of representations, not the deciphering of truth. This is completely wrong. (laughs) <laughs> because Epictetus talks about truth all the time. And so the notion that this is just about action or something, it's a, it's a misreading of Epictetus. And, and there are a, a number of other kinds of exercises that we see besides just what Foucault is calling here the sophistical and ethical that's not how Epictetus describes them. Those are classes of exercises, but we see in Epictetus's discourses in Enchiridion, a lot more going on, right? So we want to be a little bit careful in, in buying Foucault's story. The last thing he talks about, and it's kind of funny he brings it up, as a fourth technology of the self, or uh, you know, whatever we want to call these practices, is dream interpretation and he tells us that here we go in additional letters examination and ascesis we must now evoke a fourth technique in the examination of the self the interpretation of dreams and he tells us that quite rightly most stoics are critical and skeptical about some such interpretation but there's still the popular and general practice of it and there were some experts which included some of the stoics and some people wrote books about this but it's It's not really among the technologies of the self that the Stoics as the Stoics are embracing. So you wonder why he's bringing it up in that section. Maybe it's just to be as comprehensive as he can be. These are really the, the most important things, the eschesis, all these different practices that are going on writing, including writing letters, but also writing to yourself and the stock taking that's going on, whether written or whether carried out within one's own mind. It was supplemented by the, re- the retreat or retiring into the self to remember the rules of actions. So this is the way that Foucault depicts the stoic development of technologies of the self in order to foster the care of the self. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page.